Philippians 1, starting at verse 27. This is God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what now, number four, I think, in our series, The Pursuit of Joy, where we're looking at the, the book of Philippians, asking ourselves, how does, how does Paul experience this joy? Um, we, we saw last week how Paul is uh, in prison, and he's writing uh, a letter to his beloved uh, friends in Philippi, a church that he planted um, probably several decades before he wrote this letter. And so uh, last week we, we saw him sort of deliberating between uh, life and death. What's better for me? Um, because for him to live is Christ, he said, remember, and to die is gain. But he sort of resolves eventually that whilst for me personally, death is improvement, is, is, is better for me. Because I get to go and be with Jesus completely and fully. It's necessary for you, for you, you Christians, he says to the, the church, for me to stay. That's how we sort of uh, are left at the end of the, the passage. But then he sort of um, turns the corner a little bit and, and uh, he, he swings the focus away from himself onto the church of Philippi. And he starts off with this verse, verse 27, which I, I think is the, the controlling verse for everything else that he says from there to the end of chapter 2, you know, uh, verse 30. The controlling verse is verse 127. It sort of introduces a, <clears throat> a header, if you like, in his letter. He says in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this word only at the start of his, his new sort of uh, uh, paragraph, if you like, is emphatic. This one thing he's saying to the church, and this only, this is the most important thing, this is the big idea, this is the headline for you right now, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he unpacks this and unpacks this and unpacks this. This is the big idea. Let this one thing and this one thing only hit home to you. And that is this. You must be united. You must be united. And we'll see what he means by that in a few moments. See, Philippi, uh, the, uh, the church in Philippi rather, clearly has some issues when it comes to unity or disunity. We see that uh, much later on in chapter 4, verses 22, sorry, verses 2 and 3. Uh, the, these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, have been in, in great disagreement. They're both believers within the church, and yet they have had this sort of bitter disagreement. So Paul knows, at the very least, there's one big issue that's threatening 
the well-being of the church probably reflects sort of a general understanding, a general culture developing within the church. So he writes to point them back to unity. But not only is it something that he sees in the church of Philippi, this is something uh, that is important and applicable to every church and every age, right up to today, and, and, and just as relevant for us here at Foundation Church. This idea of unity. This one thing, this one thing only. You may have experienced, I know I certainly have, disunity within churches. And, and, and perhaps you know the, the devastating effect that it can have on the well-being, on the health, on the direction of the church. Perhaps you've even seen and sensed disunity among the churches. Different church leaders, <coughs> different church groups against each other, criticising one another publicly. Or even between the church and the world, that interface between two kingdoms. Maybe you've seen unity or disunity in any of these areas. <coughs> but the point that Paul gets at, and we'll see this as he unpacks this issue, is that where there is not unity, there is disarray. Uh, the, the impact of the church is weakened, its witness is weakened, its glory to Jesus is, is weakened. And so the stakes are incredibly high when we come to try and understand this idea of, of, of unity, this one thing, this one thing only that Paul turns to. You've maybe heard the phrase, united we stand, divided we fall. And nowhere is that more true than in the local church. United we stand, divided we fall. Sometimes you hear, if you follow sport, <coughs> football for example, you hear of trouble you know, uh, behind closed doors in, in the changing room. There's power struggles and big personalities. And when you start hearing things like that, then people start getting sacked and the team starts going badly and going down the table. It affects their performance. Likewise, if you hear of uh, disunity on the executive board of big businesses, Again, that usually spells a trouble patch for the company. So much more so then in the local church, when we hear of disunity and people at war with one another, it spells trouble for the future of that church and ultimately for the glory of God. So it is a huge, important issue. And we cannot think that we are somehow immune from this, <coughs> seeing as we've only been going for three months. So Paul then turns and he sort of applies this, 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 this big idea, this, this call to unity in two different ways. And we'll see that um, as we go through. The first way that he applies this, this sort of calling to unity uh, is in verses 27 through to 30. We see his call to gospel unity before the world. And then the second way he applies it is in verses 1 through to 4 of chapter 2, when he calls for gospel unity within the church. Same issue. Same call, same drive, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ in the world and in the church. So let's look at the first part, his call to gospel unity before the world. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm, he says, in one spirit. Paul, don't forget, is writing, as we've seen, from jail. And so he's saying to the church in Philippi, look, don't wait for my story to be resolved. Don't wait to see how it goes with me. Because whether I'm with you or not, I want to hear good news. 
that you are indeed living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I might get out, I might go to other parts of the world with the gospel, I might not, I might get my head chopped off by the emperor, who knows? But I want to hear good news. I want to see that your manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want to see that you have gospel unity before the world. So he then announces three sort of clauses or three uh, descriptions of what that unity must look like. He says in verse 27, I want your unity to be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. (coughs) That's the kind of unity that I want to see you having, he says, before the world. I want you to stand firm in one spirit. I want you to be immovable. I want you to be rooted. I want you to have a common purpose. That's what one spirit means. One mission. I want you to be a kind of church, says Paul, that has one mind. The way you think about things, the way you feel about what you think, your emotions, your ambition, that's what's tied up in this phrase, one mind. It doesn't just mean an intellectual agreement, although it certainly is that but an agreement with how you think about, how you feel about what you think. I want you to be united in one spirit, united in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what I want the church to look like when it comes to interfacing with the world out there. I love this phrase, you know, striving side by side for the gospel. It just sort of evokes this, uh, maybe a, an idea of a, a battalion of soldiers, particularly you know, Roman, Roman soldiers with their big shields, standing side by side, walking into a conflict, walking towards the enemy, about to engage them in battle. That's how I want you to be as a church, says Paul, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, like a battalion of soldiers, well-organized, strategic in form- formation, resolute, you are bold, you are not afraid of the enemy, you know what you're doing, you know who to attack and how to do it. This is the kind of unity that I want you to have as a church before the world. Because in the world you have opponents, and we'll see a bit of this in a few moments. The point is this, if the church of Philippi and if us as a church are in in disarray, if we're uncertain about who we are and what we're here for, let me just create a mess. The soldiers wandering all over the place thinking that the battle's here or I'm going to go off and do my thing over here or we're all in pieces. Not striving side by side, not with unity of mind or of purpose. And a battalion like that or an army like that is easily beaten. But Paul says, I want gospel unity before the world. I want you to have unity of mind and purpose and strategy He expects the church in Philippi to know what they believe, to know why they believe it, and the difference it makes. He wants them to be united in their head, in their heart, in their hands, with their actions. Then, he says, if you're united like this, to this depth, then you will be strong, then you will stand as one before the enemy, then you'll be effective in battle. And this is important for us, guys, at Foundation Church particularly in these early stages when we get to really set the pace for things to come. It is important that we not only understand this call to unity that Paul is talking about, but that we actually own it ourselves. We need to know as a church, of course, and we'll see this in a few moments, what we believe, why we believe it, 
and the difference it makes. We need to be united in head and hand and, and heart. Head, heart, hand. As a church, we need to be united in mind. And that's where uh, a good understanding, a clear understanding of, of gospel doctrine will come in handy. Not only come in handy, it'll be essential. We'll express that uh, with a, a statement of faith. We'll, we'll express that by confessions of faith. You know what we do on Sunday, <clears throat> Sunday nights? Unity of mind. But as a church, we need a unity of spirit, a unity of purpose, making disciples to the glory of God, creating a culture of evangelism, creating a culture of discipleship. That is our purpose. And we need to be united in that together if we are to be strong, strive side by side for the gospel. We need to be clear who belongs. We need to be clear who we're committed to. We need to be clear what we believe. We need to train one another up we need to disciple one another. We need to be equipped together as a church and as members of that church to face the challenges of contemporary society. And we're all out there in it, doing it. Whether it's through work or through uh, culture forming or social stuff, you and I and everybody else in this room are out there interfacing with the world, going out there and connecting somehow or other, the church and the world. So I want you to have a gospel unity before the world says Paul. Why is that? Why is it important to have a, a gospel unity before the world, to demonstrate that to the world? Well, it's clear, isn't it, as we, as we go through the text. Because being a Christian, uh, being a member of a church is not an easy thing, not an easy calling. We hear of opponents. We've seen opponents to Paul already in, in earlier passages, you know, those who preach to cause him hurt. He has opponents. But the church in Philippi have opponents as well. They have enemies. Verse 28, don't be a f- a f- a f- do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. It seems to be that there are people out there in the world, the world itself, that sets itself against the church and against those who are associated with Christ. So you need to be united together as a church before the world because you have enemies out there. Because being a Christian involves suffering. Verse 29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Being a Christian, of course, is not just simply about believing a certain set of truths, although it is that. But there's another bit that comes. It comes in the suffering. How much do you own those truths? How much do they own you? Because if they own you, then you will suffer as a result. It will come as a loss to you. There is a cost to gospel unity. We see in verse 30, sorry, 29, he says it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should suffer. According to Paul, it's not one of those terrible necessities you just have to get on that Jesus doesn't somehow intend. It's been granted to you. It's a gift. Suffering is a gift when you suffer for Christ. This sounds kind of weird and totally counterintuitive. How can this be a gift? What sort of a God is it that considers that a gift? Until we understand, and later on Paul makes it clearer to us, and we'll come to this in a few weeks, but chapter 3, verse 10, he says this. This is how he sees his suffering. Because Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection 
listen, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. See, in Paul's mind, suffering for Christ is a way of being nearer to him. Being more like Jesus. We say and we sing and we talk, Lord, make me more like you. And yet, how many of us really understand what we're talking about? But according to the Bible, and Paul specifically here, the reason we need gospel unity is because we will suffer for the gospel of Christ. It's interesting how he takes this suffering. He says in verse 28, this, sorry, not the suffering, (coughs) this unity, this, he says, is a clear sign to them, that is the, the opponents, of their destruction and of your salvation, and that from God. He's saying when the world sees the church being united in heart and and head and in hand, in in thought, word and deed, when they're united like that, when they're presenting a united front, this is a sign to them of their destruction and it's a sign to you of your salvation. Both future tense. When the world looks at the church, in some way or other, he doesn't lay it out exactly how, they see and sense somehow or other the judgment of God. Whether it's a a, a sort of vague sense of unease or a a longing for that kind of unity or an aggression against the church or something, they see a united church and it's a sign of destruction, of the coming judgment. But the church, he says, can look at that exact same sign, can look at the unity, can look at what it is and how it costs them to get there. And that encourages them, that inspires them. That for them is a sign of their salvation. That, that unity is a sign to the church that Jesus is at work, that his spirit is working. Maybe we see something similar in the plagues uh, of Egypt, you know, uh, with Moses being sent to Pharaoh and, and, and uh, doing miracles, if you like, or plagues, judgments really come on I- Egypt. And as they go on, <coughs> these signs come about whether it's the Nile turning into blood or being, the place being filled with frogs or flies coming along and destroying all the crops. All these things are a, a sign to Egypt, to Pharaoh of God's judgment. And yet the exact same things are a sign to the Israelites of God's deliverance, that he is preparing them and delivering them away from Egypt. So in the same way, I think, the unity of the church is a sign to the world of God's judgment, yet a sign to the church of his deliverance. So Paul, first of all, says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that affects you in the way that you are united as a church before the world. United for battle, united for conflict, for for the struggle, united in heart and mind and purpose. But then he, he switches we see this in, 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 in verses 1 through 4, to the second application of this, this big verse, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, to gospel unity within the church. Really, they're two sides of the same coin. But one affects the way that you view the world, and one affects the way that you view yourselves within the church, the internal unity within the church. 
I've said this before in other contexts, I believe the biggest threat to the local church, particularly for churches here in, in the sort of West, if you like, the biggest threat is from within. It's always from within. The enemy does far more damage from disrupting churches within than from all the persecutions and troubles that come from without. And so we can see Paul calling for unity within the local church here. <coughs> he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, be united. The, the, the first bit of what he's saying kind of revolves around this argument. If this happens, if you can feel this, if you sense this, if you know this to be true, then... Do this. If you have any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort in love, knowing fine rightly that they have those things, they know it, they can feel it, they've experienced these things, therefore, he says, since you have these things, you know them and experience them, you have seen the gospel, you've tasted it, it has transformed you, therefore, be united. Complete my joy. Be united. And he gives four reasons, four points of appeal to unity within the church. And again, when you read this, you can think, oh, hang on, it sounds like he's saying the same thing again that he's already said in verse 27 and 28, sort of repetition. And if you think that, you'll be spot on. Because Paul isn't seeking to give more information. He's seeking to apply what he's already told them. So since you have encouragement in Christ from your salvation, from your unity with Christ, since you have comfort in his love, since you participate in the Spirit, that is... You have the gifts of the Spirit. You see the fruit of the Spirit. Since you have all joined into that, you've been baptized in the Spirit, since you have affection and sympathy from Jesus to you in the midst of your suffering, since you are familiar with all these things, therefore, be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. See, the point is not to necessarily tease out what he means by all these little things, you know, um, being of the same mind, having the same love. We kind of cover that already. But his point is, this cumulative list, this hammer blow, hammer blow, hitting the nail on the head, building an intensity. You have all these things in Christ Jesus, he says already. <coughs> Therefore, be united within the church. Have the same mind, have the same love, have the same accord, have one mind. It's all saying the same thing. Be united. He's re rehearsing and reminding the church again of these magnificent blessings that they have already had, they've already possessed. So therefore, be united. Complete my joy. Be united. Have unity within the church. And then he takes it a bit further in verses 3 and 4. And he sort of uh, lays it out as if you need to know what he's talking about. In verse 3, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. <coughs> See, the church that's united, the church that has already tasted and received and, and experienced the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a church that has rivalry and conceit within it. Conceit, we could say selfishness, self-promotion, self-advancement. Those things just don't exist in a church that's united by the gospel. 
Don't forget, a few uh, weeks ago we saw that some Christian preachers were setting out to cause Paul hurt by preaching from selfish ambition, from envy and rivalry. And evidently Paul is seeing some of those things happening in the church of Philippi as well. But those things just don't belong in the church. That's not how you behave if you get the gospel, says Paul. Instead, seek unity within the church, he says. And this is how it looks. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. It's kind of, again, saying the same thing in two different ways. At the root of unity is humility. If you get the gospel, says Paul, if you've experienced it, then you express unity as humility. The root of unity is humility. I was thinking as I was preparing this that unity, (coughs) sorry, humility is not exactly a, a popular virtue in the eyes of the world. In fact, I think this is one area where the Christian life is at sharp conflict with the rest of the world. There's, there's lots of things that the church and the world agree on as a good virtue, desirable virtue. Everybody pretty much agrees that love is a, is a great virtue to have. It's great to have love and be loved. We can agree with that. The church and the world agree that it's good to be honest, by and large. It's a good virtue. It's good to be integrity, have integrity. Church and the world agree on that. But when it comes to this issue of humility, it seems to be a distinctively Christian virtue. It's not something that you necessarily hear too much about in the world. Because for most people, the idea of humility is associated with weakness or servitude or not the way to pursue significance. Because if you give yourself to being humble, then you're not going to get ahead in the world. Uh, If you're humble, the world says, you're not going to get love. You're not going to get fame or success or power or all the things you want. That's not the way to get it. Don't be humble. That's what the world thinks. And that's where we're at conflict with the world. So in order to get those things, the thinking goes, (coughs) we've got to look after number one. We've got to prioritize ourselves. We've got to ask in each situation in life, what do we get out of it? That's the sort of dominant philosophy in the society that we live in. It's another way of saying, in general terms, the strong eat the weak. We see that in nature, with animals higher in the food chain eating animals lower in the food chain. That's just the way it is. And so the dominant philosophy in our society says pretty much the same kind of thing. You exercise your strength, you exercise your grab, your reach, you get what you can. If it means, you know, using and abusing or, or just pushing to one side or whatever it happens to be, those who are somehow below you in the, in the ladder, then you do that because at the end of the day, it's all about what you can get. And that is a very brief summary of the sort of dominant philosophy in our own society. It's the way of the nature, we think, so therefore it's the way with human beings as well. And so this idea of humility that Paul is talking about here is so alien, so unusual to the outside world. <clears throat> in this uh, way of understanding, love um, is based on what you can get. 
The world will say love is, 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 is something you get. It's something that comes your way. It's something that you are benefited by. See, love, according to the world, is primarily about receiving. Whether it's romantic relationships, whether it's your children, whether it's your possessions, whether it's your wealth, and the things that you attach your love to, it's about what you can get. It's about what these things give you. But here, Paul is pointing to humility, which itself is a form of love. And he's showing in these verses that humility, Christian love, is radically different from the view of love in the world, in our contemporary society. Paul is pointing to a kind of love that counts others as more significant than yourselves. A kind of love that does not look to your own interests, but looks to the interests of others. The kind of love, according to Paul, that costs the one who is giving the love. It's not about what you can do for me. Paul says, no, this kind of humility, this love, is about what I can do for you. It's about how I can serve you. It's about how I can give myself to you without expecting anything in return. This is the kind of love that Paul expects within the church that is the foundation of their unity. And it's so radically different from the gimme, gimme, gimme love of the world. It's the kind of love, says Paul, that is given no matter what. It's the kind of love that exists in sickness and in health. C.S. Lewis describes it as gift love, giving love. Love that costs something to the giver. And people might say, and you, you might say to yourself, look, <clears throat> two different types of love. But I, I, I don't need Christianity in order to demonstrate gift love, giving love. I don't need Christianity to be humble. I can, I can do good works on my own. I can do acts of sacrifice and service without needing faith, or without needing Christian faith. And I would be the first to affirm that. People are entirely capable of doing acts of sacrifice and service and doing good things and expressing love in a gift kind of way in the world without Christian faith. Whether it's humanitarian works, whether it's works of ecology, you know, save the whale, that kind of thing. It is entirely capable, people are entirely capable of doing that kind of love. But often, my point is this, often, even in those good works of service and, and, and what looks like giving love, humanitarian work, save the whale, that kind of thing. Often these things are done because of what we get back. Because when I engage in humanitarian works, I get a feeling of well-being back. Or when I engage in some ecological cause, I feel good about myself. Or other people think well of me. Or even good works that we do or, or, or things that we do in society that contribute to the overall general good ultimately, most often, come back to us because we think that we're benefiting ourselves or our society or our children or the next generation. The point is this. Ultimately, most acts of love, even those that are serving and, and, and giving in the world, come back to the self. Come back to self-interest. What can I get back from this? What can we as a society get back? What can my people get back from this? But again, Paul in this 
section presents this different love, this humility, a love which is utterly free from self-interest, from self-promotion, a, a love that is totally unlike the love that says, gimme, gimme, gimme. A love that expects nothing in return. A love, a love that gives, a love that costs the giver, a love that produces this deep unity. And how does he do it? Where does he find such love? He points to the gospel. In verses 5 to 11. We're not going to go through these verses because we've already been through them together as a church on, on Easter Sunday. But when he presents this different, this alien love, this humility, he points to Jesus. He points to this Christian hymn. He says that, brothers and sisters, is how Christ treated you. He, he points to Christ and he said he came humbly for you. See, in the gospel, we realize that we are more sinful than we ever knew. In the gospel, we see that we have nothing, we are nothing, that we can give to God to make him love us. All we deserve from God, from his hand, is wrath, is, is judgment because of our sin. But in the gospel, not only are we more sinful than we ever realized, but in the gospel, we are more loved than we ever imagined because Christ gave himself for you. He came to give himself to you and give himself to you in humility. And so Paul, when he points to Jesus on the cross, he says, <clears throat> there is the supreme form of, of giving love. There is the highest form of a love that costs. You know, for us in the, in the church, expressing this kind of giving love, this love that expects nothing back in return will cost us. It comes at a cost. It will bring a sense of loss to us. If we are willing to follow Paul and, and his teaching, then expressing this humility will cost us. It will cost, sometimes, our reputation, or what we think of it. It will cost our sense of correctness and rightness, it will cost our time. For us to be humble, it will cost our money. It will cost comfort. It will cost maybe influence and levels of power that we have accumulated for ourselves. We will lose these things. But Christ says, sorry, but Paul says, when you look at Christ, when you see that hymn in verses 5 through 11, you will see that it costs Christ infinitely more to give himself to you. Because it tells us that, that Jesus, uh, the Son, was in the form of God. He was God himself in, in heavenly splendor and glory. And yet he emptied himself. He became humble. He became a servant by taking on human flesh. And coming under the law and being obedient to the law. Obedient to the point of death, even death on the cursed cross. And so according to Paul, if you have any encouragement from that gospel if you have any comfort that Christ brings to you, if you have tasted anything of the riches and the glory of the gospel, if you have any affection or sympathy that Christ has given you, <coughs> when you see and taste gospel fruit, says Paul, you will be transformed. Your heart will be melted. And you will express that transformation in humble service to one another, in love that gives and gives and gives, that doesn't expect anything back. Love, so amazing, 
we've been singing. So divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. This is the kind of love that Paul is pointing to in verses 1 through 4. Can you imagine a kind of church that is filled with people like that? Who love and love and love. Not a collection of people who are sort of somehow united on paper. (coughs) But yet looking after their own interests. The kind of people who say, yeah, yeah, I'm with you, but actually they have their own agenda. That's not what Paul is talking about here. But instead, imagine a church filled with people who consider everyone else more significant than themselves. That are willingly giving their time and their resources and disadvantaging themselves for the sake of one another. Imagine how that would look. Imagine how much of a difference that would make in the world. (coughs) Because when you understand the kind of love that Paul is talking about, you will see that it's truly revolutionary. It is completely alien to our society. And especially as we we grow and move as a church and, and Lord willing, become more diverse with, with different nations represented here, different backgrounds among us, different socioeconomic status, different educational backgrounds. (coughs) The more diverse we are, and yet the more united we become, you can see how a church like that reflects the beauty adorns the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can see how a church like that, with that kind of love, based on the love that Christ has for us, how that will in turn stimulate our joy. Because Paul says in verse 2, if you've understood the gospel, become united together, and so doing, complete my joy. The church that is united is a joyful church.